Hey everybody, welcome to the People People podcast with me, Barry Hoffman. Each week I'll be sitting down and talking to some of the biggest names in the people profession. This podcast is sponsored by Strategic Dimensions. Oh, hello. Now, if you've ever bought anything that's come in paper or plastic packaging, then it was probably supplied by Bunzel. This week, I sat down with their group HR director. Here's how we got on. Okay, so my name's Diana Breeze and I'm the group HR director for Bunzel PLC. And what does Bunzel do? So we source, warehouse and supply, I guess what you and I would both call ancillary products. So that's kind of generally goods not for resale um, to retailers, hospitality uh, customers, um, construction customers, all sorts of different customers. And it's essentially essential products that they need for their businesses, but they're not able to sell on to their own customers. So it's things like cleaning and hygiene, PPE, catering disposables, plastic bags for supermarkets, coffee cups for Costa, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, wow. So did you have to produce loads of PPE stuff for the pandemic? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Um, we didn't actually get into too many of the big government contracts in the UK. So we're not shrouded with that controversy. Um, but we did. We did lots of big government contracts elsewhere, actually. And um, because because we sourced directly from factories, and we've had very long standing relationships with factories, you know, we were able to get product where a lot of our competitors just couldn't. So, you know, hence, we were very resilient through the pandemic. So Bunzel's quite a successful company, isn't it? I think it's one of the companies that's had like 30 years uninterrupted of paying dividends that's or something right, yeah, like that. 30 years of dividend growth. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. So how did you get to Bunzel? What was your kind of career path? So um, my career was, um, was quite sort of circuitous in some ways. Um, I, I did a history degree at Oxford, had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, you know, had a great time there, but kind of suddenly found myself in third year with not a clue. Uh, and I was kind of guided by my father to apply on the milk round, as you did in those days, for well-known graduate programmes. I ended up applying to a few retail ones and ended up at John Lewis on their standard grad programme, which meant, you know, two years on the shop floor to start with, which is a great experience. But actually, I think because John Lewis is such a unique organisation and still is in terms of the way it thinks about its people, that's what got me interested in HR. So I, after two years, I decided I wanted to kind of explore it a bit more. So I went off and did a master's at the London School of Economics full time. And then I got my first role in HR in a, in a food manufacturing business. Jacob's Biscuits is the biggest brand. And in those days, it was part of Danone. So that was a real formative few years. Um, you know, I was very lucky. I had a great sponsor and I just got thrown more and more and more work at me. The business, the business was really restructuring in those days, moving away from field sales reps to national accounts and one of the things I had to do constantly was make hordes of field sales reps redundant and could create national accounts teams. We outsourced our distribution network while I was there and in fact we also closed the head office which was in Reading and relocated the whole business up to the factory which is in Liverpool. So it was just amazing experience and I was there for five years but probably squeezed 15 years worth of experience into that time. And, and then I went into consulting, which was a slightly odd decision, but um, I think I'd just got a taste for big, large scale change projects and um, was interested in doing that kind of work. And I joined Accenture, uh, well, it was Anderson Consulting when I joined, at a time when they were looking to expand beyond big systems implementations. 
But well, to be honest, when I got there, I realised they hadn't expanded that far beyond big systems implementations. And I found myself doing kind of, you know, various bits of work, some of which were more exciting than others. I did some some kind of proper organisational change work. Um, so I did a great piece of work with Tesco, for example, out in Central Europe when they were just establishing themselves there. I did an interesting piece of London Stock Exchange. But, uh, you know, more often than not, I was the kind of the change lead on a large Oracle or SAP implementation where I'd be writing communications and training materials essentially. So, um, so but but it was good experience and it, and it really taught me a lot about you know methodologies I guess for for program management and it also I guess also got me used to working with generally pretty bright people who uh, when you ask them you know for insight and knowledge on things generally responded pretty pretty fast so it was it was good experience yeah i um, think that's that's a really interesting point because in hr particularly being a function that supports other parts of the business you do come up against some people who are super smart yes. and know know their business inside out and back to front and they know all the different levers and stuff and keeping up with them sometimes can be a bit of a challenge it can, it can, yeah. And and when you're working in consulting and you're working with different clients all the time, and you know you ha you have to prove yourself pretty quickly. I mean, Tesco, for example, absolutely brutal client. You know, after every meeting, they would constant anybody who hadn't said anything was kind of out on their ear um, because they were paying a lot of money for the for the support, and you know, con so so that was it. You know, I learned a lot from those few years actually. Um, but ultimately, I decided consulting wasn't for me. And I, you know, I'll never forget. And I was working with Tesco at the time, and out in out in Central Europe, heavily pregnant actually at the same time, which didn't make it very easy. But um, there was a big internal leadership meeting going on, and we weren't invited as the consultants. We were kind of sitting in a side office, getting on with our work. And I just had such a burning desire to be in that meeting. I realised that you know, I, I, consulting was never going to be me. I wanted to be in in the client, you know, having accountability. For managing change programs rather than just kind of supporting so um so after i had my uh, eldest two children that was another reason why consulting was hard because i had two very young kids you know two under the age of three i think at the time um i decided that um that, that you know i wanted to get back into an organization and and, and I was working with Sainsbury's at the time and uh, got on very well with the fairly newly appointed HR director of Sainsbury's, a lady called Imelda Walsh, and um, jumped over the fence. So I found myself in the very strange position of being in the same meetings on the Friday as a consultant and on the Monday as a client, which is very odd because they were doing a big Oracle implementation at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and you know, again, that, that was a total sideways move. Um, you know, I, 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 the only vacancy that she had, you know, wasn't a particularly senior one. It was kind of a middle, uh, a, a middle um, ranking um, for OD manager role, I think was my job title. Uh, but, you know, but, she, uh, you know, we got on very well. And she said, you know, if you do well, there, there'll be lots of opportunities for progression. And, and to be fair, you know, absolutely lived up to a promise. And, um, and that led me in, in the very fortunate timing with Sainsbury's to be there during the whole Justin King yeah. making yeah. Sainsbury's great again era which was, again, a phenomenal experience. Mm. And um, you, you were there for quite a while, weren't you, at Sainsbury's? I was there for 10 years, which is mm. which is unbelievable, really, to think about. But it went like by like a flash. Um, 
joined in 2003, left in 2013, and, and the business during that time, and I don't take personal credit for this at all, was transformed from being, you know, I remember slipping to number three behind Asda in the very early days when I was there, and that was a very depressing moment for the business. But by the end, you know, having gone through that transformation, and uh, there was a real feel-good factor, and um, and we were we were then by then, you know, neck and neck with Asda. I don't think we'd quite got back to number two, but they did subsequently get back to number two, and um, and you know, more importantly than that, the culture of the business was completely different than it had been before, much more customer-focused. So it'd been it'd been a listed business for a long time, but could you still feel the the presence of the founding family? To a degree, yes. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, I, I, I still got told all these stories about when Lord John Sainsbury had been in charge and, you know, people driving salmons around the business so that the salmon arrived at the store before he got there mm. because he always wanted to see salmon on the on the fish counter and all of those legendary stories. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, there was no operational involvement at all from the family when mm. I was there. But nevertheless, at the AGM, you know, when they all turned up, they always got a standing ovation. We used to have packed AGMs with, you know, loads of loads of store colleagues attending right. as shareholders, and they treated the Sainsbury family like gods. So, um, so there was still a little bit of influence at, at, at colleague level, I would say, but but not not a, a senior level. The People People podcast is sponsored by Strategic Dimensions. And then, then from Sainsbury's, you went. Onto Lancet. Lancet, yeah, that's right. Um, and that that was a this might seem a slightly odd move. And if I'm honest, you know, the reason I, I, I by the time I left Sainsbury's, I was the one of the departmental directors, as we were called, reporting into the group HR director. And essentially, I my remit was everything other than store mm. HR. So I looked after all the central HR functions, reward, OD, learning and development, etc. And I also looked after the corporate centre from an HR perspective. Yeah. So a big, a big, a big remit. Mm. Um, but I was desperate to take that step up to the number one role. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, for various under totally understandable reasons, you know, it, it, Sainsbury's, the Sainsbury's board didn't see Sainsbury's as a first job group HR role. No. So, uh, you know, they sat down with me and they said they wanted me to stay, but they weren't going to, um, they weren't going to um, consider me for the number one role. Mm -hmm. um, so that felt like if I don't do it now, I never will. So I started looking around and that coincided with the call from Lansac and I didn't really know anything about property. And, um, uh, you know, when I, um, I but, but I, I got sucked in, you know, met, met Rob Noel, the then CEO, got on very well with him at, at interviews. It was clear that compared to what I was used to, it was a kind of fairly unsophisticated world in HR terms. Um, you know, property companies, as you well know, Barry, can, can be very successful purely by the you know, by riding the markets well and the and the size of their of their assets, and people can get very senior therefore in property companies without really being fully rounded leaders at all. So, um, so there was you know the, the the scope of being able to make a difference you know was quite intriguing really, and um, uh, and when when I first took the job, moving from an organisation that you know when I left Sainsbury's had I think you know. 100,000 people or something or, or something approaching that to one that had less than a thousand I think it was about seven or eight hundred when I joined Lancet you know one, one part of me thought well how hard can this be and then I very quickly realized it actually could be hard because the seven or eight hundred people were very demanding professionals with you know deep deep expertise in a certain area 
getting them to think about themselves as leaders and uh you know was 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 quite a tough challenge and there was quite a lot to do um but but no i i, I was i was there for five and a half years and and, and thoroughly enjoyed it and then you ended up at uh, at bunzel after that. Bunzel, yeah so uh, i mean to, you 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 know this too to a certain extent uh, a group HR director role is a group HR director role. It doesn't matter whether you have 600 people or, as I have now, 23,000. Mm. The board-facing part of the role is is very similar. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have to spend a lot of time on things like the um, the, the annual report and accounts, on remuneration committee, on uh, board talent matters, diversity and inclusion, etc. And and it, it, those parts of the role, I think, are very transferable from one organisation to another. Um, but I, but I I wanted to do a role in a larger scale business again. I, I missed that. Um, I kind of thought I might end up back in retail, um, but. Um, but Bunzel, in some ways, has all the positive aspects of retail in the sense it's you know it's large scale and it's operational and it's tangible and, and fast moving in the way that retail is, but it doesn't have that constant pressure of the um, headwinds of the high street. Um, so um, so you know it, it's got all the best bits, but also you know slightly more resilient and stable business model, which has been really good. I'd like to go back to something you said about John Lewis uh, at the beginning. You said you had a great sponsor, and it's something I'm really interested in is to what extent do you think someone going through their career in HR should have a sponsor? And what, what would you look for in a sponsor? How, how did it work out for you? And, and what advice would you give to others? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you've just got to find somebody who believes in you. You know, it was, it was actually a Jacobs, I would say, where I had my, my best sponsor. Um, and that, that, that was the, the scenario I was describing where it was just one round of organisational change after another. And um, and he was the HR director, and um, you know I ended up working with him closely on a number of things. And he just I remember him saying to me, "Oh, the great thing about you, Diana, is I just seem to be able to throw more and more work at you, and you just seem to be able to suck it up." And 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 so you know that showing that sort of belief to somebody. I mean, I was only. 25 26 when i was doing all these big change prog uh, programs and and that that but that confidence that you had in me you know really made a difference and made me therefore it was a positive cycle then because i became then hungry to have more work thrown at me and he just threw more and more at me um and, and you know it was just somebody who kind of speaks up for you somebody who pushes you forward so simple thing but one of the things he did when I was working for him was he got me to go into the, it wasn't called the board, it was called the management committee because it was a private company, Danone at the time. Um, but it was like it was like the board of the UK division. And um, he, he said, you need to come and take the minutes at the board. Come and take the minutes. That'll be a great experience for you. Now, you know, for, for somebody at that stage in their career to get the opportunity to sit in on those management committee meetings, take the minutes, you know, understand what was big. That was fantastic experience. And that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for him. So I think, it, it, you know, my definition of a sponsor is somebody who kind of, it's more than a mentor. It's somebody who kind of proactively provides, opens doors, opens doors for you um and and demonstrates confidence very early on probably more more than was justified actually at the time so w would you say that was a kind of lucky break or did you have something did something happen along the way in your career where you would kind of go yeah that was a big break for me that was a big moment really pivotal well that was one of them yeah. that was definitely one of them i mean i wouldn't say i i went in and said right who's going to be my sponsor mm. you know i wasn't as i wasn't as deliberate about it as that mm. you know that 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 relationship was was just a lucky break yeah. um it really was but it, it kind of gelled and it really accelerated me forward 
And then I think the other lucky break was, was, was Sainsbury's, I would say, you know, happening to be there at the time when the business was was basically going to have to transform itself or die. Mm. You know, you might remember those grim days where we, we'd implemented all that warehouse technology and all the shelves were empty in Sainsbury's. You know, that was if we hadn't sorted it out, the business would have died, I think. So, so to be part of that very large-scale transformation, that was that was really great timing. Um, and again, you know, I think, um, I mean, I was more senior by that stage, so it wasn't a question of not being ready to take on the responsibility, but it was, it was definitely you know taking a fairly opportunistic attitude of grabbing opportunities as they came and 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 being and, and being prepared to do you know the the very positive side of what i did at sainsbury's was lead the whole leadership program around making sainsbury's great again which was just a really positive thing and that was great but i also had to be prepared to do the headcam reductions in head office you know we had to stand up and tell everyone we we're going to lose 750 heads we hadn't got a clue where they were going to come from so i had to lead the really negative parts as well as the positive parts and um i think that's important it's being being prepared to you know get your get your hands dirty yeah, yeah. as well as kind of seek the glory well, i think that's there's definitely those couple of things there that you find in lots of hr people the, the willingness to roll up your sleeves and sort of get stuck in with things but also yeah. taking on stuff that isn't necessarily conventional hr just what, yeah. whatever's thrown at yeah. you it's kind of well i'll do that i'll have a go at that and well that doesn't look like yeah. it's working properly also i'll sort it out is do you see that in some of the people that are coming through the profession do you do you uh, are you asked for advice very often from from people yes you know so sometimes sometimes i mean I, I you know i think i probably could be a better you know a broader mentor than I am, you know, but I do try and do the best by the people that work for me and encourage them to take to, to, to take opportunities to get outside the narrow sphere of HR. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, encouraging people who work for me to be part of, you know, big project steering groups and that kind of thing, even if it's turf that they're not familiar with. So, uh, you know, the, another Sainsbury's example, when I was there, Sainsbury's was seriously looking at moving into China. And um, there was a steering group established for that. And, you know, I, I, I was on it. And I also took one of my more junior team members with me on it. And in fact, she ended up moving out to China for two years. Um, and so it was, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't even know how to set up a payroll in China. You know, we just had to kind of start from scratch. But, um, you know, amazing experience. And for her, you know, she's now a group HR director. It took her, you know, it took her, it, it was the seminal move for her that took her to, through to the next level. Strategic Dimensions, the unrivaled HR network. And, and if you if you were to say there was one thing that makes you a really effective HR director, chief people officer, what, what do you think it might be? Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. I think you have to be quite resilient. I, I, I was just about to say that, actually. I think that's probably right, yes. Um, because it's quite a lonely old yeah. job, as you know. It, you know, you can't be everybody's no. friend. And you can't form relationships in the same way that perhaps other people can in an organisation. And, you know, unfortunately, it is one of those jobs where when everything's going well, you don't get that much credit. And when something goes wrong, you certainly hear all about it. And, uh, and, and you know, there's, 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 there's people always happy to uh, sling mud at HR, as you know. So you do, you do have to be resilient. Yes, you do. You do have a sense of humour. I like to think it's the power behind the throne. That's the way, that's the way I think about it. Yeah, but then, you know, having said that, and I think you're right, and I think the relationship with the CEO is really important, but you've got to be careful you don't just come across as a kind of stooge to the CEO as well. 
So you've got to, you know, you've got to be quite careful about the way you manage all, all the relationships. And it can be, yeah, no, it could be quite a lonely, lonely old job, I think. The other thing I was going to say, joking, is that the one thing that stood me in very good stead over the years is being able to talk about football. So, so I'm a bit of a football fan, and um, you know, over my career, I, you know, sadly, I've been the only woman on many of the teams that I've sat on at various levels, and being able to talk chat about football certainly has helped. Yeah, me. I have to say, you're not the first woman that I've heard say that, and I, I <laughs> yeah. I'm not interested in football at all. Don't follow it. I've no, no, no interest, and you definitely feel a bit sort of on the sidelines when when the conversation yeah. starts about. Man City. There was a big. I think I, we're, we're recording this today, and I think there was a big Man City thing on. That um, I, I only know because a friend of mine got caught up in an airport in Prague with about I don't know how many thousand. Well, they're playing in the Champions League final on, on oh, right. Saturday. Oh, right. That'll be it then. Yeah, that'll be it. Yeah, yeah. And Prague was where the West Ham were playing. Oh, right. So yeah. So there you go. I've proved to you yeah, already. Yeah, I know yeah, a little very bit. Very good. Very good. That's that's where my knowledge ends. But but no, I mean, you know, joking apart, I think I, I, I've been very lucky, you know, I've never felt any form of discrimination or, you know, at a disadvantage for being a woman at all, really, in my career. I, you know, I've been very lucky. And I think that's, when I think about why that is, I think it's mainly because I've worked for businesses where there was a very clear case for having more women in leadership roles. Um, but certainly, and I found myself the only one uh, at various times. And so therefore, you know, being able to, um, to operate well in a predominantly male world is I found I found pretty useful. Yeah, it's a very emotive and polarizing topic the whole I mean it, those of us that have done the the CPO role get very sort of caught up in diversity in the boardroom the whole kind of the balance mm. of gender and ethnicity and um lots of focus on making the board a more diverse and inclusive um place to be and I think inclusive is probably a better word than diversity yeah, actually, I agree. when you have inclusion it, it should in theory lead to more diverse uh, groups yeah. of people um what's your view on the on the, the kind of you know, the parker review and hampton alexander and so on the, the, that versus kind of one and done where you see lots of boards putting one person on a you know one um person of color or, or one female onto a board and then sort of thinking it's diverse which of course it's yeah not. i mean that's just tokenism really isn't mm. it i i mean so interestingly i was at an event last night that was run by egon zender and they've done a new piece of research it's called search 2.0 it's called and it's about how do you get more diversity into the search process and and, and they've concluded the same as you that actually it's not really diversity because di the word diversity and all the efforts of the Hampton Alexander Review and the Parker Review have, have taken a very topic-based approach. So, you know, we'll start with gender, which was the Hampton Alexander Review. And, and you know, to be fair, without without that push, who knows where oh, we'd absolutely. be in terms of gender diversity. So it's, 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 it's got its place. Then we'll move on to ethnicity with the Parker Review. And then, you know, who knows what the next, well, I think we can probably guess what the next topic, couple of topics would be. But by tape, taking a topic-by-topic topic approach, you know, you know, is somebody, is some group going to think, well, how come I'm last on the mm. list? You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of address the broader issue of how do you get real diversity of thought around the board table? How do you tackle things like social mobility, where you know, I mean, what do you say? You know, that some review will dictate that you've got to have one 
disadvantaged person on your board? I mean, what's the definition of that? How would that, that topic approach isn't going to work to get us to the point of real inclusion. Um, and, and it's only real inclusion, as you said earlier, that that, that is going to open up um, real diversity of thought and therefore help boards to make better decisions. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Having one woman, one one more, oh, particularly non-exec, yeah. you know, having one non-exec on your board where everybody's drawing from the same small pool and the same group of, of you know, very capable women mm. will be sitting on about five or six boards to enable those companies to tick the box. That's mm. not going to, that's really not going to do it. And for me, generally in the workplace, we all know how to behave, you know, in a kind and inclusive kind of way, but somewhere along the line, it breaks down and it doesn't happen. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think you are right. I think the one thing that does that, that is better now than it was, though, is people calling out bad behaviour. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I, I you know, again, I, I'm very lucky. I don't think I've ever really faced what I would call discrimination, but I've certainly faced to some into some inappropriate behaviour over the years and just kind of let it pass. And I think people people call out bad behaviour more effectively now than they did in the past. And that will that will make a difference, arguably you know, too much calling out, but mm. sometimes the pendulum has to swing too far to then swing back. Yes, I think I think you're right. I think some people mistakenly think that they have a right not to be offended and sometimes you, you, you see stuff that is, um, up, you know, upsetting or offensive and you get cross about it and that's, that's your prerogative, but it doesn't mean mm. that everyone has to accommodate you necessarily. It depends yeah. on the issue. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky one and... Um, yeah, definitely a, a tricky it is, one. It, yeah, it, it definitely is a tricky one. Um. So where, where do you go for your networking opportunities? I, I This is a question that I get asked quite a lot. So you mentioned that you, you've been at a thing with one of the search firms. Yeah, but... I mean, I just do not do enough of that, Barry. Mm. I really don't. Um, I, um, I, I kind of pick pick things to go to where I think it's going to be a high quality discussion. So generally, I went to this thing last night with Egon Zender because generally mm. their events are very good and I hadn't been to one for a while. Yeah. So, um, and it was, it was very good. You know, if, 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 if YSC run anything, I try and go because it's normally really interesting. Um, if we, I, I used to go to a group that McKinsey pulled together. I'm not quite sure what's happened to it actually of, of chief people officers. And that was always very good. Um, I belonged to Critical Eye for quite a long time. Which I um, which I really enjoyed. When I was at Landsec, I did Critical Eye, and I got a mentor through Critical Eye, and um, their events were were good. But what I found with that is, you know, one cycle, and it gets starts to get repetitive. So um, so I kind of moved away from Critical Eye. Though they still invite me to lots of stuff. Um, so, um, but I don't I, I don't do I don't have a natural industry group peer group at Bunzel like I did at Landsec. You know, the people in property, it was called people in property yeah. group of, of, of I used to enjoy that because, you know, it well, was we uh, still I meet got, for lunch. We still yeah, I got to know my peers really well. Yeah, I really think, well. Uh, I mean, Liz has retired from Seagrove, but yeah. you know, we, we, yeah. we're, we all still I mean, I've left Landsec as well. So yeah. we're all still meeting. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. I mean, I used to enjoy that. And I don't have, I mean, Bunzel hasn't really got a peer group in that sense. Mm. You know, we're not a distribution or third party logistics company. We're, you know, we're, we're fairly unique. So, um, so I miss, I do miss that. And, and therefore, you know, I, I definitely should do more. Uh, because when I make myself go, I always really enjoy it and get a lot out of it. I'm, I'm a non-exec as well. That That's another thing, you know, I, that, that gives me a different perspective and gives me an insight into what other organisations are doing. So I do enjoy that. 
But once I've squeezed, you know, my job, plus including all the traveling, plus being a non-exec, there's not that much time for other stuff. No, and you, you do quite a lot of international travel, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah, I've just come back from Latin America. I'm off to Canada next week. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so where, where do you go for your advice and guidance? Who do you look to if you've got a particularly tricky HR situation or business challenge? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, um, I, I wouldn't say I had a particular kind of HR mentor anymore. Um, I, I did. I did have when I was at Lansec, I, I had a, um, a coach, a guy called John Ainley, who was for Alexander. And um, and he um, and, and he um, in fact, he's the he's the I think chairman now of Alexander. Um, and, and he'd been the HR director of Norwich, Norwich Union, then Aviva, then uh, WH Smith. And so he was a really good he was a really good wise counsel on HR matters and, and a broader range of things. Um, and, and I know I could ring him now if I mm. had something um, that mm. I wanted to talk over. Um, so, but I don't, you know, it's a good, it's a good point because I don't think I really have a, 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 an HR mentor really anymore. I mean, I have people I would discuss broader business issues with. So the chairman of Tops actually was my internal mentor when I was at Sainsbury's and he was the, he was the CFO at the time. And he is definitely somebody that if there was a broader business issue going on, I would pick up the phone to. That's Tops, Tops Tiles where you're non-exec. Yes, I'm not going to work. That's, yeah, that's 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 where I sit on the board. I'm not going to be working with him on the board for very much longer because he's about to step down. He's done his time, but he's that that is definitely a, a you know a sustaining, mentoring type relationship that I will carry on tapping into. I'm sure. And do you do you keep an eye out for sort of emerging talent in HR? Do you do you sort of talent spot uh, around your business and other businesses, people you meet when you're networking? I, yeah, I do. I do tend to log it, only in my head, really. Mm. You know, if yeah. I meet somebody super talented, I do always, I do always log it. And and actually, <laughs> you know, I can remember logging it from an aspirational point of view as well. I remember, you know, going to things and seeing people who, you know, before I was a group HR director, seeing people who were and thinking that's the kind of group HR director I want to be yeah. and um uh, and so yeah so when, when I'm looking lo- looking at uh, emerging talent I do you know I do log it and I do do stay in touch with people that you know I've worked with in the past so you know it's great to see for example the two the two really talented HR managers that I had working for me at Sainsbury's are now both in very big mm departmental director roles one in one in hr and one in retail operations actually and mm. that's always great to see to kind of keep a track on talent that's worked for you in the past and and, and you know ditto ditto the two i had at lamsec who you know yeah. very well yeah, um yeah. it's always great to see people move on to bigger and better things and if i can mm. play a, a role in that in any way then i do even if it's not working for me again yeah i quite like getting calls from headhunters and asking to you know think of names and yeah. i because i have you know i would know the four or five people in my head who i would put forward for for roles yeah i think that's a that's an interesting point because the headhunters definitely do that quite a lot and yeah i think there's there's nothing like a, a you know kind of positive reference from another human being you can look at linkedin and cvs and all that kind of stuff but when somebody you know and trust gives you a positive yeah uh, description of somebody it's, i think it's quite a powerful yeah i agree powerful thing. i agree i agree but i you know like, like all of us i mean i you know i i do i could do more of that i'm sure you know i think um i think there's always a danger when you've been quite successful yourself you kind of pull up the drawbridge a bit and i think you know it's, it's real responsibility to make, to make sure that you don't do that and, and actually where people have given you a chance you give others a chance 
definitely paying it forward is really important yeah so if i if i was i'm gonna give you a, a magic wand now and the um what would you change about organizational life in general oh um corporate governance nonsense really i would say yes <laughs> I, you know i genuinely genuinely worry that there's, there's little incentive for very talented people to work in plcs now yeah because of all the constraints and and the corporate governance code and all the rules and regulations around executive pay which is just making you know making the rem report get thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker mm. and um you know i think I, I think there's a serious danger that people are going to be disincentivized from wanting to lead a public company in the same way you know i worry more generally about public life mm. um, that, you know that's a separate topic but but you know i i, I do worry that uh, we're making it harder and harder to attract talented people, um, particularly in the UK, but it's the same to a lesser degree everywhere, where there is so much, you know, there's so much constraint around. And it was, you know, initially, if you think back to the global financial crisis, it was all put in place for a reason. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it's got to, um, you know, it's, it's just got to become more pragmatic, I think. I think you're right. I, I, I did a, a post about it recently because the the CEO of the stock exchange came out and said that the UK was becoming uncompetitive yeah, in terms yeah, of CEO salary. Yeah. And I and I sort of look at things and think, well, I want the CEOs to be paid a lot because I want them to yeah. do really well. And yeah. I get frustrated with the comparison between the average worker's pay and the CEO pay. Because if you're in a large organization like a retailer, like a Tesco or a yeah. Sainsbury, the, the CEO is of course going to be earning a hundred or two hundred or three hundred times more than someone who is in a in a store and that's right because they're two completely different jobs I, i'm yeah. very bemused by some of the narrative that you see yeah. in the press yeah who just paint the ceos to be like the devil incarnate i mean it's it was yeah. a bit like being at, at landsec when you know landlords were the worst thing ever yes it's yeah. a, the press yeah. just take a position and, and doesn't matter what you do um, i know and some of the yeah i mean some of the so things like lena you know, last year or the year before when we all had to put post cessation shareholding requirements mm. you know things like that are just taking it to a ridiculous you know when are people actually ever going to get that be able to get their hands on any of their you know, wealth it's, it's um I, I, that's the thing i worry about most mm. well there's a is review that, you know, i think that the the corporate code is out for consultation is, at the moment yeah it is and you know thankfully i don't think there's going to be that many more things no. on the rem side there's a you know an increasing focus as you say on things like the ceo pay ratio though and yeah. um and you know remco is taking more accountability for the wider workforce and being able to demonstrate that that's impacted the way that they mm. think about executive pay and that kind of thing but i don't think there'll be any hopefully at the moment i don't think there's going to be no. anything too major but but you know nothing more isn't isn't good enough i think at some point it's got to be just just made easier made easier yeah. for talented people to feel well rewarded because it's, it's it's a harder and harder and harder job and yes and especially when there's a lot of private money around yeah they'll, yeah. they'll probably What's gravitate towards private private organizations yeah. yeah yeah well that's a good use of your magic wand i think <laughs> oh, very very good um. don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes of the people people podcast oh here's one for you i've got a list of questions here that i'm sort of looking at what do you, do you have a favorite phrase or saying if i asked your team or, or your kids what have you got like a, oh yeah always says that diana always says that 
Um, yes, probably the one, one the one thing that I always say is, and it's not a positive one. It's <laughs> and, and it's like probably linked to what I said about a magic wand. It's it's losing the will to live. I uh, say that a lot. Yeah. So when I you know when I am faced with because I, I I am unfortunately one of my real downsides. I do get bored bored quickly. And, you know, I, I've learned over the years to really make myself focus on things because, you know, you have to in this job. But, um, but you know, I, I don't have a massively long attention span and I can be quite impatient. So I, I'm losing the will to live is a phrase that often comes out of my mouth. Right. Well, I, I think I'm doing all right to keep you talking. Then you are, yeah. Now. And I'm not losing the will to live now, That's Barry. That's good. good. <laughs> well, well, so here's one for you. With, with the corporate governance, the concerns that you've got and, and all this stuff that we have to do which sometimes seems a bit well honestly a bit like a ball ache you know it's it's mm. hard do you think ai can play a role do you think ai are going to write rem reports and annual reports before oh, too well, long probably yeah probably that'd be great wouldn't it yeah it would it would it would yeah, yeah they just just the ceo pay all those charts that you know mm. take us ages to pull together could just magically appear but you know, but but, but I, I do think the secret of a good REM report is on the story you tell, and I'm not sure AI could ever do that. Um, but you know, it's all everything is all in the positioning, and it's all about making the right link between the way the company's performed and the way that you're awarding executives, and making sure that link is absolutely clear. Um, and so, I'd like to think there's still a role for a human in there somewhere. Yeah, and do you think automation will take over some of the things that we do in HR? I mean, I arguably I'd say it already has because you're already yeah. using systems and you know the work days and 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 people's um success factors and all that kind of stuff yeah ready to automate quite a lot of things that in the past people would have done manually i guess but do you think it'll go even further yeah i mean i think really 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 good people analytics are important and you know i i i don't do not i mean gosh i mean i yearn for work day at bundle yearn for mm. i gave you such a good gift there barry <laughs> it's really very good yeah that's true <laughs> yeah uh, and um uh, but but in a way it's wasted at landsec yes. because it's you know um but but it but it is a brilliant tool and uh, you know it would be brilliant for bonzo but i don't have mm. it so i produce an hr dashboard it takes ages and you know lots of manual returns mm. to get it right so you know i think i think good people analytics will could make a real difference and actually you know suck a lot of resource out of the team but it's it's being able to do something with them that's that's the challenge and i think um yeah i think i think ai can play a role in learning and education as well very successfully which again is very time consuming so um but but if it if it, if it means that the team have to raise their game um in terms of you know not using the excuse of bad data or getting sucked into very very sort of manual and operational tasks and that's that's got to be a good thing mm. and fewer fewer higher quality people who have got really great judgment and are able to do something with all this massive data that we're generating that's got to be a good outcome yeah. i yeah, think i think so and what do you think about where, where do you think the profession's going in the future i mean in the next sort of five or ten years do you think hr is going to still look the way that it currently does do you think it's going to change um beyond recognition um I'm hopefully there's there's always going to be a need for it there's always going to be a need for it I, mm. I i mean i think it might um you know it might move from still a big focus on kind of mass transactions to more effective kind of decision support type role but that means you know there are implications for the kind of capabilities we have you know we we have to be much more future thinking in terms of thinking helping our organizations think about what capabilities they're going to require in the future and you know technology is only one of them but it's a really big one 
um, you know, and technology takes so many different forms in organisations. Having we being the people that think ten years out, and what kind of skills and workforce are we going to have to have to deliver that performance moving forward? That's a big role for us to play, but it's completely different to the role we play now. You know, thinking about actually, you know, as we were saying earlier what's the role of a leader in the future is going to be very different and much more complex than it, than it is even now. So, you know, when we are recruiting the next generation of leaders, to have that future piece in mind is something we've just got to do. So, But I don't think, you know, I don't think that, I think we've earned our place at the top table now and I don't think that that, that should change. Yeah. Um, you know, I just hope it will yeah. be, it will be a more interesting and more business, core business role then it, then, then it, you know, still, still in some organisations, it's still a bit of a peripheral, um, you mm. know, activity that sits to the side. I don't think it will be able to sit at the side anymore. Yeah, I, I'd like to see more HR folk on more boards. Generally, yes. I think the skills that we, you know, we have in HR, listening, supporting, challenging, are just absolutely ideal for being on a board. Yeah, and and I'm surprised that there aren't more HR folk on boards. I suppose the. the the naysayers would say that there isn't the caliber of of person but i I think there is i think that i mean there is something in that i mean i don't know about you but when i go to one of the things one of the reasons i don't go to that many gatherings of hr folks is that sometimes it can be a bit depressing when you look around the room you know it it can um so i think there definitely is something in that there there are there's not enough people who are you know who have got who are business savvy enough to sit on a board you know you can't can't just speak up when you're talking about talent or recruitment you've got to have a view on you know broad much broader strategic and even financial you know the financial acumen of a lot of hr people just isn't there yeah i think it was interesting when you were talking about your career and starting off more generally and then sort of funneling it down into hr and consulting really helps as well i think Mm. i mean i did i did 14 years at volkswagen um 10 of those were not in hr at all and and i think Mm. having sort of breadth an understanding of the wider business is very helpful. I'm not sure how people who have a career in HR and nothing else, I don't know how they will fare, actually. No, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think it gets very tough. But, but you know, they're going, they, they can only fare well if they put themselves out there. You know, it goes back to what we said yeah. at the beginning, kind of put themselves up for projects which aren't, strictly speaking, yeah. HR or, you know, or get themselves educated. I mean, I don't think we would move to the American model of if you haven't got an MBA, you can you considered kind of totally illiterate. I don't think we'd ever go. But, you know, we, we do have a responsibility to educate ourselves uh, in areas where we haven't, nece- you know, haven't necessarily had the yeah. experience. I'm always telling people, read the FT, read the Economist. Get, get yourself a really yeah, broad exactly. understanding of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Read your own and annual report. Yes, <laughs> and, um, you, know, somebody, you know, and if you can make sense of the of the notes to the financial accounts, then yeah. you're halfway there. So you, uh, you, at one point you mentioned it's it's quite a lonely job, and it is uh, actually doing doing this job, but it's also a super, super busy one. So uh, to kind of finish mm-hmm. off, I, I'm going to ask you, what do you do to look after yourself? How do you, you know, what's your kind of self-care uh regime or, or what what sort of things you get oh well i try and i, I try and squeeze in some mm-hmm. exercise um so not not very original um you know increasingly it's kind of a quick half hour run rather than anything else so when i'm traveling you know i've got there's, there's a group of us who none of us run very fast but you know we kind of particularly if we've got jet lag we go out at five in the morning when we're yeah. all wide awake you know we a little run in the morning certainly helps um uh, so squeezing in some exercise you know i i i watch crappy tv 
I have I have very, you know, I have a lot of guilty pleasures in terms of really <laughs> trashy TV. You're going to share then? What, <laughs> what, what do you watch? That I watch. No, I watch things like Below Deck. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> And uh, you, you never have heard, I know you never heard of it because it's so it's, it's on it's on E4. You know it's it's absolute nonsense. Oh, well, but I, I can, um, I can you know, beat I find that because I, I am absolutely loving cruising with Jane McDonald. I I, I have no idea oh, yeah. why, but she's just fantastic. Too. It's a, it, she's she's such she a natural no, it, personality. My, my my Saturday nights in lockdown were cruising with Jane McDonald, followed by a royal mm, documentary. A cruise. <laughs> Channel Five, <laughs> that sort of TV escapism. Well, listen, thank you so much um, for talking. Uh, oh, it's been a pleasure. You are absolutely brilliant at this, by the way. Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the People People podcast with me, Barry Hoffman. See you next time. This podcast was sponsored by Strategic Dimensions.